My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. As I was putting the show together, working very hard to get it finished before heading out to Book Expo America, it's this loud, soul-crushing, and crassly commercial exposition that occurs annually here in New York, I learned that the great poet and author Maya Angelou passed away at 86. Now, I first read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings when I was 18, and even though I didn't, indeed couldn't fully know the racism that Angelou experienced, here's what I did know. The migratory experience of bouncing around from job to job, just getting by, being labeled a freak, trying to find any morsel of hope when the refrigerator or the cabinets are barren with food. I mean, Angelou's death is so shocking to me because to my mind, 21st century literature just isn't offering as many entry points for normal, everyday voices that are now deemed alternative. The whole MFA versus people of color argument that we have seen uh, with Juno Diaz. And I'm wondering, could Maya Angelou even get published today? I really don't know. I mean, the world is too busy getting so hopped up over novels that, well, certainly entertain like Hollywood blockbusters, but what are the more human issues? What are the things that cause us to inhabit this earth? What of the hope that keeps us going when all the chips are down? Well, this program has always been about celebrating alternative voices and weaving them into a canon of other authors who you probably already know. And Paula Bomer, who has appeared on this show two times before, is very much about peering into the abyss and seeing if there's something human inside. More often than not, in her stories... And in her novel, Nine Months, there is. Now, her new short story collection, Inside Madeline, is now out from Soho Press. And in the conversation you're about to hear, there's one moment where Paula and I identify a book by Ian Hacking called Mad Travelers. This book examines how mental illnesses change over time, rising and disappearing, and why it's important to consider this transient truth when we think about what makes people tick. And it does lead me to wonder whether the people we deem crazies or outsiders, whether in life or in fiction, deserve a lot more respect than we give them. Okay, so I am here once again with the marvelous Paula Bomer, who is most recently the author of Inside Madeline. Inside Madeline. 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 Okay. I as don't it, know. That's this. This will be the great challenge as uh, as the book is uh, put forth into the universe. Madeline. How, what, what what is the preferred pronunciation? Well, I think um, because the I is at the end, yeah. that I that that would be the emphasis. Madeline. Yeah. Madeline. Okay. All but right. I know Madeline is also something. Um, I think that's when they spell it without the e. We could always just but say I'm inside just at, Maddie. You know. <laughs> well, there is Maddie's her nickname yes. that she goes by. Yeah, definitely. One thing we didn't actually discuss the last two times we chatted was your interest in the external. Uh, I mean, many of your stories here feature side characters who have their skin pocked or acneed or stretched or otherwise maimed in some sense. Anya has acne scars in Reading to the Blind Girl. You have Polly's chicken pox scars in Down the Alley. Uh, there's Maddie's beginnings in Inside Madeline. How much do you need to know a character physically before knowing her internally? How does a damaged physical appearance uh, help you find unexpected internal qualities about a character? Are there any disadvantages or advantages in concentrating upon the external? 
I actually was greatly affected by an essay or a nonfiction piece by Flannery O'Connor, who complained about some other writers who she didn't appreciate because she said, I can't see these people. Yeah. And then I was always, you know, revisiting Flannery O'Connor. And it seems like, it seems quite simple, but you'd see her characters and she explains how they look. It's a little old fashioned, but I kind of, I think it works um, for this collection in particular. And uh, especially dealing with, you know, external damage or, you know, how our bodies affect what's going on inside of us. Yeah. Uh, There's a huge new age movement about that, you know, like you have to do all these things inside your body to glow or whatever. But uh, yeah, interesting you point out their scars and and kind of deformities. Yeah. that it too would be the grotesque in Southern fiction essay from Flannery O'Connor, and I was unaware until you unaware. pointed that out. But now, obviously, now that you pointed out, I was like, "Oh, that is a theme." You're but, right. But, but <laughs> I, I am curious to get into this notion of how a character looks. I, I've actually been discussing this quite a bit this year with authors, especially in relation to sustaining a mystery. How you see in mysteries how you don't really know the protagonist, how the protagonist looks like, or whatnot, and that's part of the way of getting inside and in, uh, the character internally. And I'm wondering if um, if what what motivates your need to uh, really see them externally before you can see them internally? Do you think there's a kind of uh, a mystery or a tension here sometimes when you're advancing a story? Well, I hope there is mystery, and uh, not necessarily in the classic mystery novel, sure. but definitely you want to be discovering things in a story as you go along. And I hope you know I can accomplish that. I don't know if I, actually a lot of the I'm thinking of the story. Um, uh, Cleveland Circle House, and yes. when that that story came to me, and it's the opening, and it's all about how she looks, like her neck's too, her yeah. chin's too long, or I, I can't remember exactly. But that story came to me first with this this young girl's face and how one person loves her for it and thinks she's amazing, and another person doesn't think much of her at all. Like her parents, in other words, are, have this very different reaction to who she is physically and you know as a person. So um, that started the. That started the story. Much so, as the back started inside Madeline? What started? The, the back of the mother at the very oh, beginning. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder if you was, need to fixate on a physical part like that. Yeah. And well, and that was the, the dynamic being, you know, she's always, there's her mother's back and they're yeah. kind of weird separation and they're trying to, uh, to bridge that separation by feeding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, that was very obviously something I was trying to do and I did it in a kind of repetitive, somewhat experimental uh, way not it, not as traditionally it's structured weird. narrative. It's weird because the beginning of that story made me think of a Dorothea Lang photo for some reason, like the hardened back. And I was thinking, gosh, if we don't, if we see her face, will she look like you know something out of out of the uh, Dust Bowl or whatnot? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, I don't think you ever really see her face. No, we though. don't. Okay, we don't. That you don't. It's a nice. Hey, no. see that? I'm telling you, there is mystery here. There is intrigue. <laughs> yeah. So in mysteries, uh, I can't. I don't. I'm not as well read in mystery as you are, but I do know that uh, Jim Thompson, who I don't know if you'd call him, I guess he's more noir, but you see his I, people. I call everything literature myself, okay. so it well, just happens yeah. to be categorized in the mystery right. section sometimes. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you. Um, uh, but Jim Thompson, you see his his characters, although they kind of bl- all the male characters, I'm, I'm thinking now, kind of blend together. Yeah. But the women are specifically, uh, my fa- one of my favorite, it's she's... Really beautiful, but she has long gray hair, and he's dealing with all his weird Freudian mom issues, like he often does in yeah. his stories. Uh, so, and her looks are very a big part of 
her, you know, her character and his relationship to her and how he likes the fact that, you know, she's got long gray hair, even though she's also very young and sexual in a way. <laughs> so, you know, the dichotomy of that. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I, mean, I think that drawing, you know, getting an idea of what people look like, you know, weight issues are a big part of it. This book deals with the the external and how yeah. it affects our our place in the world. Sure. Polly with her going through puberty, which is a horrible time, and all you care about is what people think about how you look when you're 12. Yes. So. Well, I mean, this this leads me to wonder if external description is almost kind of a mirror. That's all right. Sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. We'll get it. We can have a few dogs bark on this okay. podcast. Uh, well, I keep the, keep the tension going. Um, it makes me wonder if external description is, in some sense, almost a mirror. That you can hold up to the reader, that you as, as as an author to sort of confront either the world or to confront the notion of the worldview that the reader brings in, in looking at your stories. Is that I, safe to say? Yeah, I would hope so. That yeah. would be wonderful because I definitely put thought into how I'm describing them, what I decide to uh, focus on, and and it and it affects how they are seen in the world. And, you know, uh, accepted it by their communities or relationships with their professor. The one you mentioned, Anya, um, the fact that she has pockmarks endears her. It makes her vulnerable to the student and makes the student feel that she can bridge this, you know, teacher-student gap and really have an, kind of an intense friendship almost with yeah. this woman. Or at least lean on her in ways that uh, she that are very gratifying. Uh, and... That's definitely, I have a thing where I love vulnerability in people, so basically I project that in various ways throughout uh, all of my books, but maybe this one, because they're all kind of coming of age, so they're in that really more insecure phase in in many ways. Well, that's interesting. We have a teacher-student dynamic, but there's also a student-student dynamic in many of these sort of college stories, so you, you almost have to have two dynamics to to get inside what these protagonists are dealing with. I'm wondering how how that kind of relationship developed in these in the blind girl story and also uh in uh cleveland uh, circle as well uh yeah well i definitely a theme in exploring throughout this is young women or girls and their relationship to other young women and girls and i don't really point i don't paint a pretty picture i'm afraid um and even though there is it's not all bad but um most people i know throughout their life, you're going to discard some relationships. And those relationships, uh, because they're, oh God, I was going to say toxic, and that's so cheesy. Well, toxic but there is, you know, what, But I think there's a book called, like, Toxic People, and this whole silly psychology. <laughs> why, wait, probably, why is toxic cliche now? I'm curious. Well, I think because of a book, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like the inner child, you know, and you, know, well, you say that, and you kind of But toxic isn't I mean, on that level of inner child. Oh, or, I have, okay, yeah, maybe. Yeah. We, we, well, we, thank you. We can use it during the course of this conversation. Okay, without it's okay. being ashamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can use anything. <laughs> well, are you, are try, I'm actually trying to think that, using the word toxic, trying to think of um, um, another way of, of describing it. But one thing for certain is, I do believe, so this is another like psychobabbly thing, but when you're young, you're kind of reliving relationships from maybe even your family relationships, uh, and you kind of seek out the person who's going to be in some of the negative things that happened at home. Yes. And I'm not saying that everyone has is completely damaged or whatever, but most people have, have some bumps in life, in their family life, in their social life. Um, and then I take it to a bit of an extreme because to me, that's more interesting in, f- from a literary standpoint. Um, 
and I don't always, but in this book, I would say a lot of it's quite extreme. Uh, and definitely these characters are, are, a lot of them are attracted to people who aren't very nice to them yeah. <laughs> and who they either worship because they have things that are small or they're skinny or they they seem confident and then they end up getting kind of hurt by that situation or the opposite, the occasional like, oh, this person's vulnerable and therefore I can be vulnerable around them. And so there's this, that's that safety, the more safety relationships. Um, You're sort of suggesting that people are looking for a new family when they go to school and this is kind of the kind of great fluid organizational structure that you can bring into narrative as well, which requires organizational structure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that's a very good way of looking at what I'm trying to do, in, in particular with this book. Yeah. I don't think, um, and I, I can't really think about the other two right now, but definitely that, you know, these young people out in the world, um, and they're trying to make their own world, which is their own family, over yeah. again. And sometimes it's the bad aspects. You know, like, your older sister made you feel like crap all the time. And then so you're like, oh, this person's making me feel like crap. That must mean it's the right fit. Yes. <laughs> because, like, yes. yeah, that's a simplification. And I think I avoid uh, a lot of that simplification Um be, I hope to have avoided it because I don't always go into the backstory. Yeah. You just kind of see them in their new situation. Um, well, Cleveland Circle House, you see her relationship with her parents. So that's pretty obvious. It's kind of, it kind of hits you over the head, but I hopefully I'm doing enough things that aren't um, as predictable or whatever in the story that it makes it okay. That I'm just like, yep, this is how her dad was. This is how her mom was. And so kind of fucked with her. <laughs> well, well, this is, this is interesting. I mean, you call this sort of simplification, but every writer has to start somewhere and you can't just, I mean, you have to riff off of something. You have to have some organizational structure. And then from there, as you start to imagine, it becomes something distinct. Uh, I, I mean, you I know, like how, that. How, how no, do, I like that very much because I do. I yeah. do start with, especially the story structure. Novels. Uh, who was it who said you can swing a cat in a novel? You got all sorts of rooms. Even though I, I rooms room. No, that was interesting. Uh, you do have rooms. You as have well, rooms if it's, as if well. The exactly. A house. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, that came out accidentally, but it sound it actually works. Um, you have space. Yeah. 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 And. Uh, stories you have less often. It doesn't mean you can't do a lot within that story. Cover a lot of time if you want. Um, go into incredible detail if you want. But yeah, I, I'm a structure person, even though I end up then veering from my structures yeah. a lot. And some of that structure is just even a psychological, okay, this is this relationship, where, and then what happens from there? Like, this was a relationship with her dad, but how does that affect her whole life? And then you can go in, in many different directions. This leads me to ask about the structure of Inside Madeline, the great novella at the end of this collection. I mean, did this start off as a sort of examination of weight, and then it kind of merges into this examination of promiscuity and then it goes into this examination of marriage. And I like the sort of contrapuntal tension in this, but at the same time, I'm wondering, you know, were you flying by the seat of your pants here? How did you devise the structure of this one? How did you get inside the head of Madeline? I spent two years working on that. And it was the learning experience being never will I spend two years working on 90 pages ever again. But so the truth is, I, uh, it started out with a person who has problems with, um, with definitely with, with, uh, food and body issues, things that interest me because I grew up all around a lot of people with eating disorders. It was like the thing to do in the eighties was to have an eating disorder. It was, do you remember it was your mother's before back cutting. <laughs> I remember my mother's back, um, 
even though I was not the person with the weird food relationship with her. I had a, a lot of other problems, but my sister had an eating disorder. Hopefully she won't listen to this. And I didn't use which one's name because she might sue me, but uh, she had a very serious eating disorder, a very strange relationship to food. And then I went away to boarding school, which was just like, you know, a big party of eating disorders. <laughs> it was before cutting. Um, it was before Adderall. <laughs> eating so was disorder like, was the prototype for it, cutting. It, yeah. well, well, I do, First you start I by were, shoving the food in, then you start by slicing your skin. Well, I do believe that there were, uh, I do believe there are cultural aspects yeah. to um, certain mental illness. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and they have their time. There was a very fascinating book called something about trains um and in when when the hobo in the 30s there was this mental illness and it was called train fugues where people would jump on trains and disappear for weeks and not recollect it and had a name i can't remember the name of it now but it was a mental illness which doesn't exist anymore it's fascinating there's there's there was a book uh, i'm trying to i'm blanking out on the book but someone um did it um in fact it actually may have been ian hacking uh, who was concentrating on psychiatric disorders that once defined humanity and that have just essentially fallen by Exa- the wayside? Yes. And I, I believe Ian. Hacking I wonder did if this one. is the same book because it was. Being I haven't 15, read it. I, I read 20. his other book, The Taming of Chance, which is awesome. Okay. But this one is I, I was curious about too. But this, you know, how the paradigm shift of what is a mental disorder changes like every couple of decades. Right, and I'm not even talking about like hysteria yeah. and vibrators or because that's uh, like sexual repression still, but that. Things disappear. There are no longer people jumping on trains and being like, oh, I disappeared for two yeah. weeks, and that's a... Um, I bet you it's the same book. I bet it, it could be, and it was like 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? If it's Ian Hacking, that's awesome. I lent it to awesome. somebody, yeah. and it's, it never was returned. I'm really mad about that. Oh, man. <laughs> so I don't know. Now I can't remember which book it is. We were both I, reading Ian Hacking, because I just wrote an essay on Ian Hacking about a month or two ago, so it's like, wow, kismet. Is that, is that on your blog? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's uh, <laughs> The Taming of Chance, which is all about how probability... Anyway. <laughs> I have to check it out. Yeah. Uh, but what fascinates me is some people then say, therefore, it's not a mental illness. Yeah. And other people say it is a mental illness, but it's just a mental illness of its time. I'm the latter. I actually do think that it's not just girls doing what's cool. Like they actually, so there is a sickness that, you know, really takes over. And especially if you have a 15% death rate, that's what it used to be with anorexia. Yeah. And even if you don't die immediately from it, let's say not immediately, but long term, you know, you do horrible damage to your heart. Um, so you're going to die much more, you know, more likely to die young. Um, and so I was exploring that. And then, so food disorder to, to um, sexual activity, uh, I think there's the relationship being, you're trying to, con- a big thing about eating disorder is control yeah. and not really, you know, you think you're controlling things by controlling your eating, but actually it's, it's actually controlling you, the disorder slowly. So it's a kind of a misunderstanding of control. And then with sexuality, you know, you want to be a sexual person, but you don't want to be a bad person. And then how do you control that? Uh, you know, and, and are there conquests? Is that like winning, you know? So, uh, and that period of time, I think it's, from like age 10 to 18 or so that the novella covers a lot of young women I know. And I know I had my problems too, of figuring out who I wanted to be sexually. Um, how, how can I deal with my body? You know, um, people were getting plastic surgery or whatever, uh, stuff like that. Um, and then the marriage thing was like, when you finally do get intimacy or when you finally find somebody who loves you and, and, and have some intimacy, how's that going to, how's that going to fly? Are you going to be able to handle it or how lasting is it at when you're that young? Um, 
stuff like that. Well, it is interesting how you tend to explore marriage through intimacy and especially the lack of it, both in Inside Madeline and also, well, I couldn't help but contrast this against Ted and the mother of my children. That's fine. <laughs> uh, or Greta's husband in A Walk to the Cemetery. Um, the men in these marriages define them in some sense by the sex that they're not getting. And I'm wondering, you know, um, I'm wondering why, I mean, obviously intimacy is an important part of any relationship, but, but in, 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 in your stories, it almost seems to be the defining quality. And I'm wondering, you know, why you think that is. Well, please expand well, upon okay, that. Okay. I'm going to kind of, uh, I'm going to give this a try. <laughs> Historically, people got married. So, well, there was property issues, Yes, but also that's how you could have sex. Yeah. You know, otherwise it was like really pretty, you know, there's prostitution, but otherwise it was like marriage and that's the way you had sex. And, and that's that explicitly was... stated in, in Madeline where there's the whole, you, wh- how could you call your wife a whore? <laughs> right. <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember that. You'd have to point that out. But I'm Sometimes when people quote bits of, um, especially inside Madeline, cause I worked on it for so long where then I really couldn't look at it because it was like, if I, you know, you just get so sick of something that you spent too much time on. Um, and then I, I'm like, I wrote that? Oh, goodness, what was I thinking? And there was an excerpt recently where I, just, I read the first two sentences, and I was like, okay, that's it. I don't need to – I wrote it, but I don't need to look at this Too right much now. intimacy with your own prose. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> really, it happens. I, I don't think I'm alone um, with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, marriage is lasting or not lasting, and, and sexual enjoyment, those things are it's, – it's interesting to me. Jonathan Franzen uh, wrote an essay about, like, how, like, everybody's concerned about, are we having good sex? Are they having better sex than me? You know, I forget what the, he had a better structure than that, but that was the basic gist. And I think there is a lot of, like, is this sexual happiness? Does this feel good? Does this feel bad? There's a lot of bad sex in this book. Um, yeah. And in, in my books in general, there's yeah. kind of bad. I appreciate just... it. It's about <laughs> time that we saw a kind of counterpoint to the sort of Hollywood, hey, yeah, uh, cowboy type of style right. sex. You usually get Right. Yeah. No, and that's what uh, girls is kind of interesting that way. There's some yeah, really, inc- yeah. really good bad sex scenes. Oh, yeah. And I don't and, mean and badly also, written, but like, this isn't really how I wanted to have sex. And, and we're having sex this way. I love the way girls confronts uh, body image as well. It really, <laughs> really, I mean, it's even made me a little uncomfortable too, which I, I appreciate because now I actually have to challenge my own notions of, of body image, you know, and oh, both yeah. on one term, in terms of what I see and what I, and what my own is, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. She's doing some very interesting things with that. Um, and obviously, it's, you know, just a recent show. Uh, uh, no eating disorders, all, you know. But anyway, um, but definitely all sorts of what's, what does it mean to be beautiful? What yeah. does it mean to have good sex? How do we get... And also wanting to be loved. And that's constantly, they're not quite getting there. or They think they are. And then it just, then it becomes suffocating or something. Uh, yeah, so it's fascinating to me. I think that sex can be written about in a way where you're really exploring it, not just for for fun or for... Um, Titillation. Well, and so I'm trying to definitely do that with this, with a lot of when I write about sex. Is it's interesting because I mean this kind of goes back to my early observation about how the external leads into the internal. Mm-hmm. Does the physical lead into the emotional for you as a writer? Is that uh, yeah? I think for people in general, um, usually if you're physically uh, involved with someone. Well, there's the cliche that women, you know, they get all emotional and men can compartmentalize and stuff. And I don't really believe that so much. But then again, I'm not a man. But I know a lot of men. <laughs> I've been married to one for 20 years. And I do think that uh, it's, it's, it's both, generally. And if you're not having sex, 
um, it can put an enormous strain on a relationship. And that's with definitely with the, the stories you mentioned from baby, yeah. um, where their sex life is um, not always great, which is also very normal. But that's also then you're going to feel less connected to the person who you're supposed to be connecting that way, supposed to be connecting, or you did connect that way, and then that connection's gone. And so you kind of feel, you know, it's going to take a, it's not going to make you feel good. Um, and I'm sure there are millions of examples that I'm blanking on right now from other 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 books. I'm trying to think uh, of ones that you and I have talked about together uh, in the past. Or of, not. Or not. <laughs> well, that's the main theme through freedom is there, uh, the relationship between Patty and her husband is pretty much not having very good sex for their whole marriage. And yeah. so then she has an affair and the sex is great, but the guy's a jerk. And so then she kind of, she actually settles for the okay sex, which, you know, that's kind of depressed me. I, I, I thought, uh, really? But, you know, it was the, it was her happiness. And the, she, she knows you have to trust the character then that that's going to be her happiness. And it, I like the imperfect happiness of that, actually. But it's also heartbreaking and, and also makes you want to pull your hair out. Like, just tell them, like, go have sex therapy or work on it harder, you know? Like, try to make your... I'm sounding like that doctor, that German doctor, who's the one who had that talk show. Dr. Ruth? Yeah, I'm yeah. like Dr. Ruth right now, and I'm not really very Dr. Ruth-like. I, so, my, my, my partner used to be in a choir, and Dr. Ruth was one of the donors. So when I saw her, I saw Dr. Ruth quite frequently, and I, and I, and I stupidly just did not say hello to her. So there you go. That's my Dr. Ruth connection. <laughs> another, um, another TV reference yeah. is The Americans. Um, there's a scene where the, this couple, one of the couples are just not having sex because he's having an affair yeah. with a young woman. Um, but he comes in and his wife is listening to Dr. Ruth because you used to listen to her on the radio. And yeah. she's just saying the most explicit kind of like, you're, it was shocking <laughs> at the time. that Like, yeah. who is this funny German woman sitting there telling us how we should all enjoy sex and how, like, you know, penis and vagina. And you're like, wait, this is the radio. It's fascinating that that was, yeah, absolutely, that that was iconoclastic in some sense. And now it's <laughs> like you can just go ahead and go no. to any internet. I mean, you yeah. porn, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pornhub, right. whatever. Yeah, I could name more. <laughs> Internet has taken over. Um, uh, from from yeah, from sex to location. Um, I actually wanted to ask you about why many of these stories are set in places like South Bend, Indiana, or Boston. Um, Brooklyn and Brooklyn Heights uh, doesn't really feature into these particular stories. Um, New York is actually visited in one story. That's right. And I'm wondering, um, you know, <laughs> have you kind of OD'd a little bit on Brooklyn? I mean, when were these stories written or were they compartmentalized from ones you were not able to include in Baby, your previous short story collection? Well, I was trying to prepare myself for that question uh -huh. because, and it's a little something that I remember when I was, I've been writing for 20 odd years since I'm 46. I started taking it seriously at 22. I wrote before that, but at 22 is when I was like trying to get into a regular uh, habit of it. So over these years, uh, I would read writers saying, I wrote this story and then I put it away. And I, 10 years later, I finished it. And I was thinking at the time when I'd read that, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. really? You're going to have to wait 10 years later till you can look <laughs> at the material again? And then you have a story? It just seemed very bizarre to me. But not regarding stories, because I generally write them in a more, um, a smaller time frame, a story, but putting together these three books that I've recently published, including the two others that I haven't published, um, I wrote them kind of intermittently over very long periods of time. Uh, 
and I'd start something, put it away, and then I'd kind of put yeah pieces together. Like a few months later, I had a story for this book, or a few months later, I had a story for you know for this book. Um, so it wasn't being sick of Brooklyn. It was just my kind of haphazard way of really writing yeah. them over a long period of time. It took me a long time to kind of totally finish them. I'd have drafts. Um, Brooklyn and, was easier to finish than South Bend or Boston, basically. Uh. Possibly, yeah. I think you're. I guess so. I mean, well, I mean, you, you know, I you're, you're, we're here in Brooklyn, so it's yeah. an easy reference here, <laughs> right? But I mean, the the first collection, Baby, yeah. I wrote over a long period of time. Sure. The first story I wrote, I remember writing the very first one from that collection. I wrote when I was pregnant with Hal, so that was 16 years ago. So it wasn't exactly uh, a quick. You know, I don't know you just sit down and write a whole book really quickly. Like, that never happened. But I was constantly writing and constantly basically working on three projects at once with big chunks of time where I was focused on one, especially the novel. That yeah. I had to kind of stop writing stories for quite some time and um, just write, just work on the novel. Um, but Inside Madeline, it was like every now and then I'd look at the, you know, my, my manuscript and be like, I know it's not done. What does it need? And try to, th- and then I'd go through my notes. I have an idea folder, you know, stuff like that. And try to, um, you know, put another story in the collection. Um, the last story for Inside Madeline that I wrote was um, about a year ago. Which one was and that? Outsiders. Okay. The only boarding school story, which is kind of strange because I went to boarding school for three years and it's just, a, you know, tons of material. And yet all I've managed is squeeze out one story. So maybe there'll be uh, more of that specific boarding school life kind of book stories. I don't know, but I, I feel like I haven't really given its proper due. Well, that's that's interesting because if you're a fiction writer, you are there to imagine and you're using your own memories to summon that imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if maybe in some ways you, you, you need memories uh, to trigger imagination more than just a sort of strange concept. And, I, and I'll get into what I mean in, in a that, little bit, but I, I was curious. I know, that's interesting to me. Um, definitely a memory will trigger kind of more imaginative ways of, you know, of ins- instead of writing nonfiction, for instance. Yes, yeah. yes. So, uh, and yeah, I guess, you know, you, you asked about why the, these are set in Boston and South Bend and, um, and, uh, where else was it? I think it was just those two mostly, Pretty right? Pretty much those two, yeah. Yeah, and um, that's it. Well, I, I grew up in South Bend, and these are a lot of, you know, growing up stories. And um, and I went to college in Boston. I lived there for four years. So those are kind of the formative years, you know? And then after that, I came here, and I kind of slowly became an adult, <laughs> which is a little different than those. It's a different thing. Uh, so I just, I definitely, I'm not really right what you know, although I kind of do write what I know, and especially regarding place. Yeah. Um, one of my books is that I haven't published yet is set in Berlin because I spent six incredible weeks in Berlin at a, when I was 17. So again, a very impressionable age. Um, I, I don't think I could set something somewhere that I've never been, but uh, people do it and more power to them. Yeah. It's no, there's no judgment there. In fact, The Man Who Loved Children, have you read that by Christina Stead? I haven't yet read it. I, it sits in my collection. It's been, I know, and Franzen is the big proponent of that book. But it's very, it's but not, I, I it's, it's not great. a very Franzen yeah. book though. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny that he likes it so much because it's very, un, it's, a, it's very strange languagey and 10 times darker, although he thinks it's, he thinks it's funny, but, um, but she set it in Baltimore yeah. and she lived in DC. 
but I don't know what there was some reason she had about setting it in Baltimore, a place that she wasn't really that familiar with, which I yeah. think is really fascinating. I don't know if I could really, you know, I couldn't be like, oh, I'm going to set this in St. Louis. Even when I was writing about the Upper East Side in the story Superstition, I have uh, my character live on the Upper East Side, which I've been there a bunch. But when I was trying to finish the draft of Superstition, I, for, I took it alone. I went up to the upper, took a subway from Brooklyn to the Upper East Side, and I walked around, and I was looking at corners on Second Avenue, and I was like, okay, there's not a diner here, and there's not a CVS here, but that's okay. I'm just going to, you know, there, it could be a CVS. <laughs> exactly. You know, well, and people have different ideas about what you could, Annie Prue, who I think I was rereading uh, Bad Dirt a little bit recently. I'm a big rereader. And she was very much a stickler. Like, if this Route 17 doesn't exist in Wyoming, you can't say it exists. And she got in an argument. Richard Ford was like, I can make up whatever I want. And well, if Kafka could do it with the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> the sword instead of the torch, then I yeah, think that pretty I'm, much demolishes Annie Prue's argument as I far know. as I'm concerned. No, I'm with you. I think she's, yeah. as a writer, she's also really trying to preserve something. Yeah. And I'm trying to preserve something, but in a vaguer way and not worried about what whether. I did go up there and kind of look around, like, maybe there's a diner across from a CVS, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, anyway, and then I let go. That, that's but. that's fascinating to me because um, you want to get detail right to preserve something, and most people want to do it because, especially I think in Annie Annie Prue's case, perhaps um, they want to do it because they want to get the reader to believe. The author wants herself to believe, so the reader can believe. But preservation. That's really interesting to me because, uh, I, I mean, you know, the book itself is not necessarily going to last beyond, like, say, a, a 50 to 100-year lifespan, if, if unless someone plucks it Six 100 years later. Six months of your yeah. lucky. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. I'm pretty optimistic. I, mean, I, I think we keep these books in generational rotation. But the point is, is if you're, if you're using the book as a medium to preserve something, and if you're using detail as a way to preserve something, I mean, I'm wondering, I mean, I'm, what, what do you think? What, what do you think motivates you, I suppose, and, and, and are you preserving anything real? I mean, what are you preserving exactly? I Particularly, let's say, with nine months and Inside Madeline, I think I am trying to preserve a certain time and a certain community. Yeah. Um, in nine months, I'm, preser- I'm trying, you know, tr- uh, one, you know, sort of there's many different views, but, you know, a certain cultural way that families existed or exist in, let's say, you know, the 90s and 2000s or whatever. It was originally set in the 90s, and I kind of now made it more generic, and and I think I threw some cell phones, so it made it more contemporary. And with Inside Madeline, I was, at one time, the name of the, my working title was 1986. Yeah. And in fact, like in the story Breast, it's like it was 1986. Oh, that takes place in New York. So there's two little New York moments, but they're not very, but so it's a book about the 80s and about being a young girl in the 80s. So I'm trying to preserve what was it like to be a young woman or a young girl in the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, Inside Madeline itself is not dated, specifically like it's not mentioned yeah. that it's the 80s or early 90s, but a lot of the story... It was mentioned story- a birth date, however. So, oh, there uh, was. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's probably... So I got, I got that. Oh, I yeah. see. Yeah. So, I, I, and so in that preservation is, I use it kind of, I think, somewhat loosely, but capturing a time, a place, and a way of life because it goes away, you know? Eating disorder turns into cutting. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ruth kind of weird sexual issues turn into, you know, internet. Um, and sexual freedom for women, um, I, I don't think really. Actually, I have teenage boys, and if you're a, a girl who's uh, enjoying having sex with multiple partners, you still are called a slut. Yeah. I'm not sure that will ever change. Um, I think it's maybe gotten a little better. 
Um, but now but, we have a culture of, sh- of slut shaming and all that. Which, well, that I you mean, can not, even say yeah, slut shaming. Yeah. There was no such thing as slut yeah, shaming. You I know, just were I a slut. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I was like, uh, so, and now there's hookup culture. So supposedly it's more okay for girls to be slutty, but I have not seen that in with my children. And they're 15 and one's going to be 18. Um, it still is very hard for a girl to be promiscuous and be treated with any respect. Yeah. Um, and so that hasn't changed. Um, but like the their nature of the discussion, the t- discussion around it has changed. Um, so that when I say preserve, uh, I think being true to t- true to the time. Um, you need to have a concrete place of time. I, I do so a place in yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I do that. Uh, I, I don't know if I'll always do that because I hope uh, one thing is this book being different in terms of subject matter. Um, I ho- that doesn't mean that you know five years from now I won't. Uh, won't fiddle around with some very different ways of approaching writing a book yeah. or a story. But yeah, I would definitely say with these ones, place and time are a character yeah. of the book. I, I have to bring up uh, Reading to the Blind Girl. This, to me, was an extremely fascinating story because it continues, despite the literal blindness of the story, to pursue blindness in other ways. Uh, there's Caroline's literal blindness... There's the blind unknown of Shelley and her boyfriend. Shelley is Caroline's roommate. Uh, and, and they're having sex possibly in front of Caroline, but we actually don't know uh, because Caroline can't see them. There's the blindness of what Maggie isn't telling her teacher. And the reader of the story becomes increasingly aware of how text almost isn't enough to know what's going on with these characters. Um, I, I guess this is one of the reasons why I had brought up... Uh, mystery and the idea of text as a mirror uh, in, in a few earlier questions. But I, I'm curious about this because, uh, you know, given all the blindnesses within blindnesses, you know, how was this a new story for you to write? Is this kind of um, a kind of jumping, a launching point for your own efforts to kind of grow uh, and, and perhaps involute the structure in order to seek uh, further forms of narrative structure down the road? I'm, I'm wondering about this. Um, well, I can tell you how the story came about. Sure, sure. Uh, I read to a <laughs> a sight impaired girl. Now you call it like, that, that. That it was okay to call her blind in an anthropology course, um, but I hadn't thought about it in a while. And something I do as a writer is I go through old papers and old notebooks and photographs when I'm having a, a tough moment, which is really quite regularly. And I found all these anthropology. Um, I save everything, so there's something good to being a hoarder, kind of. Uh, I'm not a hoarder, but I, I keep things. But you it play was, one on TV. Exa- no, I mean, it's not that. I'm a cluttered person, and I, I don't throw, especially papers out, um, you know, things that I've read. And um, the, the anthropology course was mostly, uh, what do they call, Xeroxes. And yeah. I find all these dirty, and there's something that was so fun that they were dirty and dusty. And all of these memories came back about that time when I was living in Boston, and reading to this uh, young woman, and um, and I had a serious crush on the teacher. So basically, honestly, there's just a lot of all the actual work rereading it brought back all these memories, and um, the dialogue is obviously made up, um, and other aspects of it are made up and compressed and stuff. But it was something that I actually I went through, and as far as structurally, and definitely there is this whole thing about. Um, what it means to not be able to see. Uh, and I, in writing the story, what, what, I guess the real pleasurable moment was coming to the, the end. Yeah. Um, and I had a couple of things going on at the end. One was 
how afraid uh, the Caroline character could be. Whereas even though she tries to be really tough, but act, you know, so many times the people who are acting really tough are really fearful people. And then she, you know, getting, and it took me, I had to write that. Like I had to write her being really tough to figure out she wasn't really tough. She was really kind of terrified and alone in the world. And it made her a little mean, Yeah, <laughs> which happens. I think a lot of mean uh, and, and I say a little mean because her her roommate situation was was bad. Um, yeah, that's kind of a, an examination examination of cruelty among people, um, and then how we don't really know each other. Or, yeah, can't really seeing and knowing. There's the seeing and knowing. Um, I think that uh, I'm trying. I think. Um, that everybody thinks they know the other person, pretty much everybody, like even the professor and, uh, yeah, they don't like, the professor's probably in a shock when this woman who she thinks is all helpful and together, probably it comes off as like, you know, bursts, bursts into tears and comes off as just like desperately needy. Um, but I would say that then, story sort of confronts the idea of, here you are, reader, uh, you have this text, mm-hmm. and you have the text within the text, the Xerox, as you mentioned. Yeah. And, they're, and you, they're quoted a and lot. And they're quoted. That, yeah. the, I, I figured that, I guess... Yeah, those are real quotes I fig- that I, I had to, that. that I acknowledged at the end. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but you have a situation here where, as interesting as these characters are, you are not going to know them. And, and as such, it, it kind of challenges the idea of... Well, why are you reading this story in the first place? Are you reading the story for literal answers, or is sustaining the mystery of what is behind some of these characters? Maybe that's what keeps us going. Maybe that's the preservation impulse that we were trying to identify earlier. Maybe that's what causes us to preserve things: the idea, the uncertainties, the abstract nature of what we live in and what we represent through writing. I, is, is that safe to say? Yeah, I like that a lot. Mystery is a word that I don't. Um when you first brought it up, I was a little, I got a little insecure about my lack of knowledge of, of the structure of, of a classic. We're all no, bound by mystery. So, all, so let's exactly. get that, let's get that no, out of the well, way right and now. And it's just a, fu- <laughs> there are many ways of exploring yeah. that. And definitely that's something that, um, it, in that story, I'm, and, and, and other ones, hopefully kind of all the time trying to just, you hit the wall of mystery and then all the details are kind of, um, more examining, you know, or illuminating mystery. Yeah. It's not, a, there's no answer and you don't really, you know, maybe you get to know the, by the end of a story, you get to know more things and some things start making more sense. But yeah, it also just, there's the whole more, there's more unknown at the end of each story as well. Some part of the floor. Does that make sense? No, I mean, I think what we're talking about is this, that some, if you're painting a floor, ideally there should be some part of the floor that is unpainted at all times because the minute that you paint that in, you look at, at, at that floor with a complete monotone uh, hue, and then it's just no longer interesting. And then what's the point of actually considering the floor, even though, I mean, you'll have to paint it again, basically. That's fascinating. That's just something just popped into my head where my house upstate is a total <laughs> dump because we're, we're never there anymore, and it's one place we just don't feel like spending money. <laughs> but one time I got it into myself to paint the bathroom floor white, um, and I did a horrible job and then also somehow managed to make weird handprints outside of the bathroom door with white paint. <laughs> and at the time it was very frustrating and I felt I'd really messed up 
I, I really did not do what I set out to do by any means. And now we bought the house in 2012. So for years now, I, I use if I use the bathroom and I see my little handprints in the messy white floor, it, I find it very endearing. But it's also a mystery. Yeah, I'll, like what was going on? That it's I, it's yeah. a mystery for you, and it's a mystery for anyone who visits the house. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. So I actually also wanted to ask about breasts, because of all the stories in the book, uh, this one gets the closest, I think, to a minor surrealism. Um, I, first of all, I wanted to ask, have you seen this animated short more, out of curiosity? No. Okay, I, I, I will send it to you, but it, your story reminded me of it. Um, anyway... We see at the very beginning of the story the glint of breasts, uh, and later a man's eyes possess a similar sort of glint, uh, almost a magical quality. Uh, and this leads me to wonder, you know, what are your upper limits in terms of fantasy or magical realism? Do you think that uh, something too extraordinary is possibly going to detract from a carefully honed structure? I, 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 it just, it's really interesting that this story deals with notions of magic even subjective magic, in a way that sort of reveals the trappings of the city and all that? Well, I don't... I, I've read a lot uh, in my 20s when I was studying... Um, I lived in Spain, and I studied a lot of Latin American literature and was reading it in Spanish and loved magic realism. Then I kind of, you know, for me, read. I definitely go through phases, and I had moved away from that. But there are a few other stories where things aren't realistic. And in fact, Inside Madeline is pretty unrealistic about her sexual relationship to herself. Um, and All the, the giants, yes. Yeah. There's, uh, so I, f- I feel like this is far less realistic than um, my other two books, for sure. Although the, the, the plausibility of, of a woman, a pregnant woman having sex with a stranger on the side of the road, you know, I wouldn't call that magic realism, but like not really... Uh, is that going to happen? You know, who knows? Samuel I mean, Delaney and- has this term called pornutopia, which <laughs> explains all the crazy sex that goes on throughout his books. Anyone can have sex with anybody, and uh, and that kind of is the spirit. But and, he's a, fiction, yeah. Sci- he, yeah, and he's even like science fiction a little bit, well, right? Yeah, he, Not really. Or, anyway. He, but, well, he is, but he's... But but like, yeah. So, um, yeah, with her, uh, you know, I think she's... Oh, a lot of young women, you know, they have the like, okay, these, this is going to change. My breasts are going to like lead me down the, you know, yellow brick road <laughs> or whatever. And, um, yeah, I, I think I, I have nothing. I don't think there are any limits to exploring that. I've, I love the blind assassin. It's something I wanted to reread. I don't know. The Margaret Atwood book that, that is very much enough kind of fantasy future stuff. And then well, even, I actually have a weird religious component, which goes often unnoticed, um, in the short story, The Shitty Handshake, um, she she tells the truth. Uh, first she says a prayer to God, um, which in, it was the wrong prayer. And then she says the truth to her sister-in-law about how much she hates her. And then the lights flicker. And that's a sign. Anyway. And in reading to the blind girl, I mean, you don't have to read it this way, but... Uh, at the end too, there's a whole pro- thing with an angel thing going on. Yeah. So, um, and then there's an- another, I, I, and I've experimented more obviously. Yeah. I have um, another story has an angel of death. Um, that's in a different book uh, that haven't been published yet. That story is called Lightning, though, and you can find it online. Um, and you know, it's just like nature, God stuff. Uh, uh, so that to me, can also be considered fantasy or science fiction because sure. your religion for some people is a, you know, more of a, uh, 
you know, a story, you know, uh, who was when we saw Bill Burr and he was comparing Scientology <laughs> yeah. to the, the, the story of the Catholic religion. Yeah, like yeah. this woman who's never had sex and then she is a baby and happens to be the son of God. Yeah. You know, the, the kind of uh, fantasy aspect of, of, of the Christian religion. Um, well, which but I, belief needs a compelling fantasy in order to actually infiltrate American culture. Yeah, faith, yeah. Or belief, yeah. And fundamentalism, especially. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I think it's fundamental. Uh, I really enjoyed that being a, a big part of many of the stories. I would say definitely Reading to the Blind Girl, Breasts, um, and Inside Madeline. You know, these aren't straightforward, realistic things, even if they're grounded in the 80s, in a specific place, and trying to capture that. Um, yeah. I have to also ask about two year, two years, Two, okay. two years. Two years. I, I, actually, that, it could be also two I, years. Do you want a glass actually. of water? I feel so bad. Uh, no, 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 no. Actually, <laughs> no. But, but it sort of came out yours. But I mean, I, but, but in light of what happens in that story, I suppose it is two years. <laughs> two years. The story in nerve. Um, what's interesting about that story? Uh, you know, unless I'm missing out on, uh, I guess, the present uh, nature of scat tales or whatnot. That's that story's uh, fairly scatological and I'm wondering you know was this your way to I suppose shake up the pages of nerve or did you want to use the idea of titillation to subvert it in some sense to come to this kind of larger truth about uh, what binds couples together I was curious uh, I don't know if you realize that that's, that's Sonia from nine months I figured that was Sonia yeah. from nine months there, uh, my editor was like you know you use this you, were, you use Sonia a lot and we had to take out a few Sonias uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway and I was like that one I want to leave it because it really is in my mind the same character yeah, as yeah. the um, character in nine months um, and, in, and there are parts of nine months where she looks back in her Boston days sure so it fit I think we got to, it was, I was happy to keep that Sonia as Sonia the other ones were a little more not quite as clear and so this we, I, we made the right decisions I think getting rid of some of the other usage of the word of the name Sonia. Um, How many Sonias were extirpated? <laughs> well, there's also tons of Madeline. Those are two yeah. char- those are two characters that I really, you know, the first story was Madeline, g- right? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I have a whole bunch of others that I'm kind of looking at now, like thinking like, should I revisit these, you know, and send them out? Um, they're just sitting around. Um, but uh, often um, I'm trying to ups- I'm trying to make people aghast or being you know like oh uh, I am trying to do things that you're not supposed to do um, and in some ways it's a little childish uh, I don't think it's any more childish than you know a lot of what Philip Roth who was a huge influence in early on I don't know I'm not saying I write like him but that he he would just go to places where you're just really not supposed to go and he still was taken seriously. And that's the, my problem, I think, for a while is when it was Nerve, um, Best American Erotica, and then no one wanted to think of me as someone who wrote literary fiction. Yeah. So then I really had, I, I felt like I wanted to change direction for a while. Then ultimately, though, I am the writer that I am. Yeah. Um, Sabbath Theater is fantastic, even though it has some ridiculous um, sex scenes. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think it's a brilliant book. Um, and, you know, I read Chaucer in high school, and that's pretty body stuff. Oh, so. yes, the uh, the kissing the uh, asshole, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then uh, my husband was The Miller's Tale, I think. Yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. Uh, it's been a while, but, but I, now that you bring that up, that's yeah, exactly... Well, that's, that's, that's that was a big one. Yeah, that was yeah, a big yeah, one. Yeah. Um, uh, and then Nick was explaining that Dante's Inferno is all about... Um, the, this like going deep into the devil's asshole. So, you know, there's a long history of stuff of where you're really just, um, yeah. And then when, you know, sex can, sex is messy and dirty and bodies are, you know, 
you know, there, there's the whole beauty U- thing. Ulysses of it, but, as well, you know. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'm not so familiar with. I, That's I okay. To, I, I read Dubliners, but Ulysses was never something I got too far through. But yes, I do know that about it. So, um, but uh, there's a lot of masturbation and a lot of <laughs> other things. Yes. People want you know this is like human life. If you're going to take the well, he does. Is this just one day in the life? I a day in the remember. life of uh, uh, Ivan uh, Illich? Or, or no, no, uh, no, I'm trying to think of Ulysses. How it takes course. Oh over yes, it. it's one day. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. June sixteenth, nineteen oh four. Right, right. Um, so there's something to say about like the reality of like what does go on with people um, in one day, let alone years of their life, and they're gonna you're gonna collect some pretty interesting moments um, that aren't really uh, that. Uh, Savory. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And th- and when you know we have to walk through this world and with our clothes on. Under- I'm not a nudist. There was something really funny about like oh, Germans and they're loving to be nudist. But there <laughs> is this we get out of the German nudism here. Well, because even though I, I I'm interested in in what goes on behind closed doors, um, and I just you are walking. We're walking around repressed. That's part of human nature. That's part of being part of society. You can't say what you want to say all the time. You definitely can't do what you want to do all the time. Oh, well, well right. So there's nudism, like, oh, let's all be naked. You know, that's not my thing. Or then there's the, there's the apes that Nick, my husband, always jokes about these apes that um, they greet each other. Like, instead of shaking hands, yeah. they greet each other by, like, humping. Like, that's, oh, yeah. like, their ape hello. They're, I think it's I thought you were bo- going to say it might they be just the grab each other's apes. cocks or something. Well, and, I think they just know, get they on top of each other. Yeah. And, I'm like, that's their, like, you know, like, hi, nice to meet you. So, um, in, in literature, there's, it's in literature, in writing and in reading books, uh, I like that where you're trying discovering or trying to... Uh, get to that weird tension of how we have to behave, what's really going on in our head, what goes on behind closed doors, um, how do we really feel about ourselves and other people when, uh, when because it, it, real life isn't like that, you know. Uh, I mean, real, re, real walking around the world life, real life is like that, uh, but it's compartmentalized, I guess. Is, I use that word twice now, and I don't... Probably have never used it before in my life. That's okay. But anyway, <laughs> I, think, I think you got you got you got the compartmentalized out of the way in the last two years. You used your allotment, and oh, um, okay. uh, we'll send the linguistic police after you if you use any more. Okay. Um, no, but 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 going back to this fiction, okay. Uh, if we're not allowed to act out our impulses, our desires, I mean, you know, how, I mean. Should fiction be that vicarious outlet, or is this more uh, for you as a writer? It's more of a kind of vicarious outlet. I, I, I think for both as a reader and a writer, I think um, vicarious living vicariously through uh, characters is fun, or not even living, but enjoy vicariously, you know, enjoying um, being taken into another person's reality, and that reality is one that probably you're not going to live. And and that like that's the reason why also you can still read you know Tolstoy or Madame Bovary because there's just this glee in it, even though you know that even if you you're not in that culture of um, talk about repression, uh, you know, or or even share uh, the middle class social ambition, which I actually I think I explored a lot more in. Um, in uh, Baby and Other Stories and Nine Months, this doesn't really explore that, that class stuff so much. Well, um, a lot of the stories deal with younger people. And so yeah. as a result, Money's you haven't quite, quite <laughs> figured out where you actually stand in the class structure. And, yeah. and um, even except so... Except for outsiders. Yeah, that except, one, except that, for that, outsiders, That's probably the main exception um, in this book. Yeah. Um, because it's obvious, that's an interest of mine as well, clearly a theme that I'm 
always always returning to yeah. uh, how you know our social structure, class structure affects uh, the way we are in this world. Um, but not for much longer, as we see uh, with the Paquetti trend pieces and all that. Wait, I see how you, oh, you're much better read on that. I, there, I there's read. a there's a best selling capitalist book by uh, Thomas Paquetti, uh-huh. which has uh, made everybody kind of go crazy because it's number it's number one on Amazon. It's basically it's a very grim book about uh, the realities of capitalism in the 21st century. And as such, it has caused, uh, 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 well, it, it basically people want to now finally stare this great problem of the 1% or the 0.0001% very much in the face these days. And so... Yeah, um, <laughs> well, that I, that now, I mean, I have a broader understanding of that problem. And, um, and Obamacare, I felt like, was such a great... Uh, moment although most people i know are not happy with it but it's still to me it's so much better than nothing which yeah. is what we had also something that i didn't know is uh my whole family got dropped from our insurance and then uh, my pregnancy almost didn't get covered uh because it was a pre-existing condition yeah and i hadn't like you know i haven't had so many health issues for a while so recently i was talking to a doctor and they're like we can't do that anymore and i'm like well that's good that that changed yeah. but can you believe like um i got sick and so when i was a teenager and the insurance company dumped my entire family and then that that illness was on the record forever and i couldn't get insurance at a job once because wow. of it and uh and then the whole pre-existing condition thing is just ludicrous. So even if things aren't better and perhaps the divide is worse than it was in the 70s, let's say, but this insurance thing has been a mess forever. Um, so now I, I'm hoping that that's something that I'm a real, like, health care. Uh, there just needs to be good universal health care. That's any, any country, you know, that that's not a developing nation, let's say. Uh, it just has to, just, it's a has to be thing that and you know, other stuff. But well, why, why, maybe a way of uh, getting into this is why do you think you continue to be attracted to class in these short stories? Is this related to sort of your overarching interest in how New York has changed, in how people who come to New York are changed, in how they're expected to confront certain notions of adulthood. I, why, what do you think motivates this? I d- actually, I haven't read that article because I have a kind of an aversion, but I grew up in a very political household yeah. where my mother um, was a socialist, and to the extent where she did not become a U.S. citizen, uh, she would not become a U.S. citizen because we are a capitalist society. And so she believed in the Austria, you know, Austria has a funky history, but it is a socialist country with fabulous health care, unemployment benefits, all sorts of things, like once you're a a citizen, which is not easy to become. But anyway, so, uh, and she was constantly screaming and yelling. She read four papers a day and, you know, was, watched four different news programs. And part of me, a big part of me was like, okay, I just don't, I don't care. I will just vote Democrat and Kind of just the ignore and, and just yeah. kind of don't because it brings up like yelling at the dinner table <laughs> anxiety. Wow. On the other hand, it definitely informs my interest in fiction yeah. and the way I read fiction and the way I write fiction. And um, and because I grew up quite modestly, and then I went to a boarding school, a very posh boarding school. I'd never seen wealth like that. You know, similar to the character in Outsiders. Um, and then coming to New York too, you, if you don't have money, and then you know it's really a hard place to live. Although I I have seen how 
this neighborhood has changed, um, but and okay, so it's harder for young people to live in this neighborhood. But then you go to Bushwick or even parts of Queens, and there's so many exciting things going on. Or where was I? A friend of mine who's a painter. He lives in um, Crown Heights, and so many fun. You know, like so, Crown Heights is what this neighborhood was. 20 years ago yeah. and the New Hal York- Ashby's the landlord I'm sure you've seen that have you seen the movie Hal, Ash- Hal Ashby movie it's called The Landlord no it's set in 1970 I mean it actually was made in 1970 but it's Park Slope and if you watch it it's completely different from how Park Slope is now it's I'm like sure. you've got you know it's like it's totally it's it was working class nice. yeah so it, and, and in that way you know I, I feel like this isn't number crunching or this isn't about policy but that Weird, arty people who are willing to work some crappy job on the side, like I bartended and waited on tables forever. You're going to find your neighborhood eventually, if it were, even if it's further out now. But it was, this, when I was moving here, you know, cabs would not, I couldn't get a cab. Yeah. I couldn't, I had, like, cabs would just kick you out of the car, which was illegal, but no one cared yeah. at, about you at all. So, you know, you'd be taking the D train alone at night when and the people were still getting mugged on the train, <laughs> you know, and I'm wearing my waitressing, my black and whites, which is just like, mug me. I have tons of cash on me you know like have, i was really have you really yeah. written about this period in some of the stuff that hasn't been published yet or have um, you thought of early exploring? 90s yeah yeah New York? yeah because it seems i mean you're right we, here. We, we've talked about this quite a I bit know, on yeah. and off tape and i and i'm wondering you know yeah. why you haven't actually explored this in fiction i you know as i said or, i write things over such weird long periods of time and then i find things and try to put them all together yeah. and to to create a I, the structure of the book sorry the mail uh the structure of the book um, t- sometimes takes me a while to put it together. Even Baby, which was easier than Inside Madeline, but um, there's a whole, I had this thing called Baby B-Sides, which musicians get to have B-Sides. I yeah. would love to publish my B-Sides, but maybe I should just call it something else and like, you know, consider it a different book. So that's kind of where I am now when I'm fiddling with that. Um, yeah, I haven't written that much about the early 90s. Uh, well, yeah, no, I was just going to say um, two years, but that's actually Boston. Yeah. Oh, and... um. Uh, Pussies, the one that's yeah. early '90s. Uh, although she's still in Boston, but she's coming to New York. Um, it'll get you know. At some point, I hope to write all the things I want to write about. But but uh, anyway, speaking of you know, I feel actually some, sometimes confident in that we're gonna people are gonna find New York interesting. They're gonna find little parts. Sunset Park isn't totally outrageously expensive i might be wrong because i have not actually renting an apartment there but that it's not like oh it's all over you know we all have to move to elsewhere kind of a thing um not that i wouldn't mind moving elsewhere it's just we're not moving anywhere for quite some time we have to put our kids through college so yeah yeah that's now i really really what i want to do next because that would be revisiting the past which is not a bad idea but i feel like i want to write down some immediacy things that maybe have to put away I think like uh, that writer who I was aghast, you know, like 10 years later, you pick up this thing. But the the whole idea of the empty nest syndrome um, is fascinating to me. And living with teenagers, this book, Inside Madeline's about being a teenager, which was horrible in many ways and also fascinating, you know. Um, but now living with teenagers from the middle age perspective to me is just unreal like really this is my life i can't you know it's you can't even fathom that this was once your life i know yeah. no or that i can't fathom that now i'm in this position where i have these teenagers who are you know just basically do whatever they want sort you know not completely but or whatever you're just living with these completely alien creatures that used to be like inside you who you nursed who you, whose hand you held and walked to school and now they're like six foot four and rude and uh 
and about to leave you with nothing but loud dogs that don't quite <laughs> fill in the gap. Wow. <laughs> they t- so that, that seems a midlife crisis book. Yeah, that's that, that's something that I'm, I'm fiddling with, and I actually might even make it as a sequel to Sonia. Yeah, and have her be like my Nathan Zuckerman, which I've brought up before, but make Sonia you know like years later she's got three teenagers. You know what what would happen to her, and make it also like I could even just do her. She would escape because I've thought about you know I was just away in Massachusetts for a week, and I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> Why go back home? They don't need me. Yeah. <laughs> it's more fun here in Massachusetts. <laughs> escape seems a fitting subject to close this conversation. But Paula, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. No, was, thank you so much, Ed. I always love talking to you. Thanks so much. Fantastic. All right. Isn't it fun? Fr- I